welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Paul writes to Timothy, his younger co-worker in the faith, with an assumption. An assumption that those in Ephesus who claim the name of, of being a Christ follower or Christ's disciples, that they would gather as a family. Paul says, I am writing these things uh, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul offers no separate category of a believer who willingly forsakes the gathering of the believers. In Hebrews 10, individual believers are admonished this way. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And get this, he says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Paul and the author of Hebrews both affirm the necessity of Christians gathering. Not just to sit back and be a spectator, but for the purpose of encouraging the rest of the household of faith. Or as Paul states it, the household of God. We know from our previous studies in 1 Timothy that this word household in this context is talking about one's own family. Those who truly belong under one roof. And when Paul says that we are the household of God, he is saying that all Christians are the adopted family members of God. How sad is it? When family members avoid one another. Holding grudges. Letting wrongs fester into bitterness. It is even worse though when those who claim to be Christians avoid or even reject God's family members. There are many who have been wronged by someone who claimed to be a Christian brother or sister. But that is no reason to forsake the family of God. The Scriptures always assume that those who love God and are living for Him will desire to gather with others who also love God. Amen. We read Jesus' words in John 13, verse 35. Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are My disciples, if you have love for one another. And in, John, in 1 John 4, 20-21, we read this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. He's talking about the family, his brothers and sisters Christ. It is every Christian's responsibility to encourage their brothers and sisters in the faith. And in fact, the Christian's love for God's people is the proof of a genuine love for God. 
Paul assumes that this love for God and His people will cause Christians to love the gathering of God's people. And Paul writes this letter to Timothy so that Timothy and the entire church of Ephesus would know how best to put on public display the infinite beauty and worth of God through their local congregation, through their local gatherings. When Paul uses this word love and when the Lord Jesus uses this word love, he's not necessarily talking about always having warm, cozy feelings. Because when it was 6.30 this morning, I was waking up. I didn't have warm, cozy feelings about getting out of bed. The bed was more warm and cozy than coming here in this room. This room pretty cold. But we all understand that a godly love is a self-sacrificing love that gives of itself for the good of others and the glory of God, which then, as we do that, those warm feelings will follow. And that is what we are called to be and to do as the family of God. Paul gives another name for the household of God in verse 15. He calls us the church of the living God. The word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which literally means called out from and to. The implication for Christians being we are a people called out from the world and to God. This is the image that should be stirred in our minds every time we hear the word church. We are the people that God has called out of the world and to Himself. And so when anybody, when anybody gets up here and says, Good morning, church, he's saying, Good morning, the called out people of God. That is what should be in our minds. In Acts 7, 38, the same word is used to describe the Israelites who were rescued out of Egypt and brought to God at Mount Sinai. The image is clear. As God rescued Israel out of slavery to Egypt, so God has rescued us out of slavery to sin and eternal death. Our local church represents a small portion of the called out people of God. And we are not the people of just any God. We are the people of the living God. This title was used throughout the Scriptures to distinguish Yahweh as the only true God. All other so-called gods are imposters. Idols cannot hear you. They cannot say. They cannot speak. And even if someone were to hear an idol speak or see a supernatural sign apparently done through them, be assured it is no more than an attempt by the devil to blind the eyes of the world and drag people into eternal death. The devil and the cursed angels who follow him cannot do good. And they cannot give life. Since they are condemned to eternal death, they can only offer eternal death. Idols and devils are dead gods. But Yahweh, our God, is the living God. 
Life exists in Him. He is the Creator, the One who spoke, and physical life leapt into existence. On Mount Sinai, the children of Israel trembled before this God, saying, Who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Joshua also declared to the next generation, You shall know that the living God is among you. Before God stretched out His hand and stopped the flow of the Jordan River, allowing His people to cross on dry ground. Even pagan kings bowed before this God. King Darius in the book of Daniel declared this throughout all of his realm. He said, Tremble and fear before the God of David, for He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. We are the, fam- or we are the family and we are the called out people, the church of the living God. This living God has given His church, His family, a crucial mission. At the end of verse 15, Paul uses an image to declare this mission. He says, we are the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This language would have put a clear image in the minds of Timothy and the Ephesian church. Ephesus was famous in the ancient world for its temple to the pagan goddess Diana. The temple roof was held aloft by over 100 massive marble columns that lined the outer edge of the entire structure. This is most likely the picture that Paul is drawing. He's saying that each local church is to be like one of those columns. Each local church is to be a pillar that holds high the truth from being torn down and that guards the truth as a buttress, a physical or structural support. Paul is not saying that it is our responsibility or the church's responsibility to keep the truth true or genuine because God's word, the truth, will remain No matter what, it will remain true. But the point is that the false god of this world, the devil, and those enslaved to him, they hate the truth. And they will make every effort to silence or distort the proclamation of the truth in this world. As you read through the New Testament, it would be difficult to miss the repeated warnings from nearly every writer of Scripture about those outside the church and within who will attempt to silence or distort the truth. In 1 Timothy, we have already seen several pleas by Paul to guard the truth from false teachers. And the theme will continue throughout the rest of the letter. Paul says this, In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. 
This demonic description may give you an image of some kind of cult ritual happening in some dark, dank basement somewhere. But Paul goes on to define the teachings of demons. He next says and equates demonic teaching with false teachers in the church who forbid marriage and certain foods. He's not talking about human sacrifices or the worship of animals. He's talking about anyone who would come into the church trying to rob Christians of their joy and freedom in Christ. Any teaching that would imply that faith in Jesus is not enough to save. Anyone who would attempt to add religious burdens of slavery onto the backs of those who had been made free by Christ. To add to the truth or to take away from the truth is to begin the process of departing from the faith and possibly dragging others down with you. This is the sobering reality. The devil's mission is to turn the church of the living God into a den of hypocrites who have departed from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching as if it was the truth, the teachings of demons. Amen. With this in mind, the mission of our church, of Agape Baptist Church, becomes all the more essential and vital. We must faithfully proclaim the truth and vigilantly guard the truth from attack. For the sake of our own faith, for the sake of our witness to our community, and for the sake of glorifying God in this life. Each local church is called to be a pillar in this image. And each pillar is made up of many individual pieces of marble. On their own, individual pieces of marble aren't really that impressive or effective. In fact, chunks of marble just scattered around all over the place and on their own resemble more of an old ruin rather than anything else. A sad reminder of what used to be or what could have been. But together, in true unity, pieces of marble can be fitted together in such a way that as one, they stand tall and strong, holding high the truth together. Every member of the household of God is needed for this task. Whether you are gifted with hospitality, service, encouragement, evangelism, teaching, administration, mercy, or any other gift, use that gift to unite this church as a pillar that proclaims and guards the truth through what we teach, our words, and how we live out that truth together in this broken world. Paul ends verse 15 with the word truth. In that verse, Paul is most likely speaking of the entire revelation of God, the Scriptures. But in verse 16, Paul narrows his focus onto the centerpiece of the Christian faith. 
the centerpiece of the truth. In verse 16 he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The word mystery comes from the Greek word mysterion, which means something once hidden, it was once hidden, which God has now revealed. <coughs> this word does not mean unknowable. Instead, it means to reveal something once hidden. Paul is saying that God has now revealed godliness. Godliness can be defined as an accurate understanding of God that results in a right life lived before God. Why would Paul say that godliness is now is only now being revealed? Surely the Old Testament law sufficiently revealed godliness how to live for God. Weren't the prophets and the priests enough? Weren't the scribes and the Pharisees able to guide people into all righteousness? Ultimately, no amount of law-keeping, animal sacrifices, or ritual cleanliness could accomplish perfect godliness for fallen humanity. There is no act we could do or sacrifice we could offer on our own that would accomplish godliness. Ultimately, perfect godliness had to be accomplished by another person on our behalf. Who would come and complete godliness for the sake of fallen humanity? Who could perfectly understand the character of God and then perfectly live according to that understanding. Paul says that this mystery, this thing that was hidden in past ages, has now been revealed by God, and it is glorious or great in our sight. This first part of verse 16 sounds a lot like another passage of Scripture written over a thousand years before. Psalm 118, verse 22 through 23 says this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. All true Christians confess together that the unveiling of God's mysterious plan is glorious, great, and marvelous in our eyes. The remainder of verse 16 is an ancient hymn that was, that was most likely well known by the Ephesian church and begins with the word he or who. This defines the person who is the revelation of godliness, the Son of God. The first line says, He was manifested in the flesh. This means that the Son of God existed before He was revealed in human body. In fact, Jesus says of Himself before He was betrayed, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. The Son dwelt in and shared the glory of the Father before anything else was made. John 1, 1 through 3 affirms this of the Son, calling Him the Word. It says this, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, notice, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Son was with the Father before any created thing was made. And He dwelt in and shared the glory of the Father. But this eternal Son of God was willing to veil His glory that He had with the Father and come in the likeness of men. The Son of God was manifested or revealed to men only in the form of a human. And He was given a common Jewish name, Yeshua, or in the Greek, Jesus. This was a common name. There was nothing glorious about His appearance. He took on frail humanity so that He could suffer and die as one of us. Perfect godliness was manifested or revealed in the flesh. The second line says, vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus, who is perfect godliness, was vindicated or proven righteous by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God continually proved Jesus to be righteous throughout His, His earthly ministry. In Matthew 3, verses 16-17, through 17, we read these words at Jesus' baptism. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, He immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The, the Spirit of God rested upon Him and remained. The Spirit vindicated Jesus every time He healed a leper or gave sight to a blind person. Jesus' mighty works were done in and through the Spirit as a testimony that He was from God. And ultimately, the Spirit of God vindicated Jesus through the resurrection. In Acts 2, verse 24, Peter says very clearly that God raised Jesus from the dead. But the New Testament goes even further to specify the three persons involved in the resurrection. Galatians 1.1 says that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Then John 10.18 makes it clear that Jesus raised Himself from the, from the dead. Jesus says this of Himself, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And then in 1 Peter 3.18, we are told that Jesus was made alive by the Spirit. <clears throat> Romans 1.4 also states that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. The Spirit testified and raised Jesus from the dead. 
And we must realize the significance of this vindication of the Spirit. Remember that just before the resurrection, Jesus died in a shameful way. Convicted by men, beaten, stripped naked, and hung on a tree, He was made a curse. Jesus died under the condemnation of men and clearly under the wrath of God. Jesus Himself knew this wrath was coming in the garden. He asked for the cup of God's wrath to pass from Him. And on the cross He cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And if the story ended there, then apparently history, or His story, would have ended with the verdict of guilty. But when Jesus rose from the dead, breaking the chains of sin and death, it was the ultimate vindication of His identity, His righteous life, and the acceptance of His sacrifice by the Father. Jesus' perfect godliness was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. The next line of the hymn states, Seen by angels. It is difficult to pinpoint exactly what is in Paul's mind here, whether it be the multiple appearances of the angels during Jesus' life, or the fallen angels who recognized Jesus and feared Him, or whether it is speaking of the angelic hosts marveling at the return of the Son of God to heaven in a glorified human body. All these are true. But either way you look at it, the emphasis is the revelation of godliness and how the angels testified and marveled as they witnessed this revelation. Probably the most awe-inspiring passage relating to this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Peter is explaining to his readers that the unfolding of history and the writing of the Old Testament was done in preparation for the coming of the Son of God and that the good news of this salvation has come from heaven to men. Peter then ends verse 12 by saying, These things, this this mystery revealed, are the things into which angels long to look. Throughout history, the angels have longed to see and witness how God would magnify Himself through the salvation of His people. Don't think of angels as indifferent. Don't think of the heavenly hosts as sitting back playing harps as the eternal Son of God departed heaven, was born as a baby, and lived as one of us. Don't think of them as idly lounging around heaven eating grapes while the bright morning star was slaughtered for the sins of rebellious humanity. No. If it were not for the restraining hand of the Father and of the Son, then the armies of heaven would have broken through and vanquished any who touched the Son. As Jesus said to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, that at Jesus' word, the Father would send more than twelve legions of angels to rescue Him. The angels long to watch 
see and testify that Jesus is the Son of God, the perfect revelation of godliness. The next two lines of the hymn state, Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. Through the ministry of the the apostles and the believers in the early church, the good news of Emmanuel, which means God with us, that message went out into all nations. This was not just a message for Jews or those who appeared to be worthy of that message. The message of forgiveness of sins and peace with God went to all peoples without exception. Sometimes we forget how scandalous and unacceptable this was for the Jews. There were even some who cried heresy when Peter had met with Gentiles and shared the gospel with them. There are still some today who claim that God loves certain people groups but despises others. Not based on anything other than their ethnicity or skin color. Some of you may be shocked by this, but I'm telling you this idea is common here in our community. And it is absolutely possible that some sitting here hold to this idea to some degree. The idea that the true people of God must be descendants of Abraham somehow. Or maybe that Ethiopians are the true people of God. Or that the new Israel are the Afrikaners. Or that to be saved you must be of European descent. Or that Jesus had blue eyes and blonde hair, a symbol of a master race. If you're looking at the skin color of a person, or at the language that they speak, or at the nation they were born from, to determine if they are or even could be a child of God, then you have missed the Christian message that God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but will have eternal life. If the commands to take the gospel into the whole world are not enough, and if all the passages that denounce nationalistic or racial Christianity were not enough, then look at the testimony of the spread of the faith. Jesus, the revelation of godliness, was and is believed on in the world. European, African, Asian, American, Middle Eastern, Palestinian, or even some Hawaiian islanders out in the middle of the Pacific. It does not matter. People from all around the world have and will continue to repent of their sins and believe that Jesus is the revelation of godliness, proclaiming all as one that Jesus paid it all, 
All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow, as the hymn writer says. Jesus, who is perfect godliness, opened his arms to all nations and the whole world. Who are you or I to speak and act as if that's a lie? As if God only loves people like me. If there is nationalistic or racist religion in your heart, then you have been deceived by a lie straight from the pit of hell. Be deceived no longer. Repent of the sin of your heart and rejoice in true godliness that sees all people as equal in value because they are created in God's image. Not because they were born in some earthly family. This ancient hymn ends with a shout of triumph and hope. Jesus' perfect godliness was taken up in glory. Jesus was received back into heaven with great victory and glory. Think of the celebration of the heavenly hosts. Think of the joy of the Father. Think of the Son seated at the right hand of the Father. Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11, summarizes well this entire hymn and brings us into the throne room of heaven when Jesus was taken up into glory. We read this of Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and in the, on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the mission and the message of the church to hold high, to guard and proclaim this Jesus, the revelation of godliness, whose name is above every other name. And that we might see the peoples of the world confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending the Son. Thank you that He came and He he lived and was faithful as one of us. Thank you for His example and thank you that He has accomplished all righteousness on behalf of those who would believe in His name. 
Lord, I pray that if there is any here who have not claimed, have not called upon the name of Jesus to forgive them of their sins and to save them from the wrath of God, that they would do that today. God, would your, your Spirit soften the hearts of even the, the hardest heart. And would you give life where there was death? And would you give joy where there was despair? Father, would you encourage your household here? May we grow, as Paul described, to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth, holding high the truth of God's Word, not just saying it, but living it in this community so all might know that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we get to be the family of God in this life and in the next. Would many join us here for your glory, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.